Hey, Evan, what's up? Hey, Kobe, I just got this song stuck in my head. Uh, Once upon a time, dressed so fine. Threw the bums a dime in your prime, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> People call us in before. Um, anyways, uh, dude, I've been thinking about this. Uh, I've been thinking about this interview we did about a week ago. Oh uh, yes, with uh, uh, Sir Christopher Ricks. Yeah, man, yeah. it's a pretty good interview. I, do you want to take a listen? We'll play it and then maybe pause it every couple minutes and talk about what's happening. Yeah, that sounds good. Let's roll it. Sounds like a good uh, good idea. Roll tape. So fine, do the bumps of dime in your prime. Then you. Hello, podcast listeners. This is Kobe from the Common Thread Podcast. I'm here with another team member, Evan, and we have the honor today of interviewing Sir Christopher Ricks, who is the Warren Professor of the Humanities here at Boston University. He was the Oxford Professor of Poetry from 2004 to 2009, and like Evan and I, he is a Bob. Like Evan and me, please. Evan and me, <laughs> please not Excuse like me, sir. I. How can you come to a professor of English and show that you need educating? I am so oh, no. thankful that you are <laughs> able to correct me. Um, like Evan Do and go me, on. like Evan and me, uh, is a Bob Dylan enthusiast. However, um, Mr. Ricks has examined Bob Dylan, as we might say, on a whole nother level. So. Um, with that, we really want to get into uh, into Dylan, uh, dig into the book that Mr. Ricks wrote, Dylan's Visions of Sin. And the way we'd like to enter is in the way that we think our listeners might be most familiar with D- Dylan, which is as, as a protest writer. Now, I think one of the most illuminating points that you make in your book is that the lonesome death of Hattie Carroll is where Dylan learned not just to write a protest song, or not just to write a political song, but to write a song politically which you compare to T.S. Eliot learning to write a poem religiously rather than write a religious poem. And I, I found that incredibly illuminating. And I wonder, was wondering if you could elaborate on how exactly Dylan accomplishes that. Well, he accomplishes it, I think, partly by resisting your usual and not dishonorable word protest. Uh, it's very important to Dylan that he doesn't like the word protest, that when he's interviewed, rather like this today, except that he's a genius and I'm not, when he's interviewed, I think, in Scandinavia, he says, oh, you want something protesty? This is my protestiest song, and so on. So he'll go to Mocking it. I tried to use the more cumbrous, straightforward phrase, uh, songs of political conscience political conscience and political consciousness. Um, protest, I mean, I'm in favour of Protestantism, and it was an extraordinary movement of protest. Um, but it has a way of feeling negative, simply. A lot of his great songs are about social injustice. Williams and Zinger killed poor Hattie Carroll With a cane that he twirled around his diamond ring fingers and he spoke through his cloak most deep and distinguished and handed out strongly for penalty and repentance Williams and Zinger with a six-month sentence Ah, but you who philosophize disgrace and criticize our fears For now's the time for your tears. 
baptism, death, the fatty arrow, uh, is in a court of law. It moves from a, a Baltimore Hotel Society gathering to a very different gathering where the judge spoke through his cloak, most deep and distinguished, and where justice is not done because the sentence is too lenient. Uh, now, there are many things I admire in the song. One is that it doesn't decide that William Zanzinger should have been found guilty of murder. Almost certainly, Dylan, there's nothing in the song in which Dylan contests the verdict. The sentence is very lenient, a six-month sentence, and Dylan thinks that the likelihood is that that owes something to high office relations in the politics of Maryland and to a whole series of other things. Now, how can this be so beautifully wise a song? Partly the things it never mentions. It never says she's black. Everybody who hears the song knows, and anybody who had read, as I had not done, the original news item would know that she's black. But you know it. How do you know it? It's rather frightening that you know it so confidently. Gave birth to ten children. Well, you don't have to be. Gave birth to, which is different from how many of them lived, because the um, the infant mortality rates are shockingly different, according to A, how much money you have, B, what colour your skin is, and C, the relation of point the first point to the second point, and so on. Um, if all she does is clean up, the, the ashtray is on a whole other level, she does level, 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 that sound, a sense of how grinding the work is, and so on, very, very beautiful, onerous, boring sound, and so on. Uh, the likelihood is, you put all these things together, and you kind of know she's black, and that should kind of make you feel concerned. Hey, Evan, let's pause it for a second, because um, I think in the next part, Rix is going to reference my back pages, and I just want to play a small clip of it, because he's going to compare that to Lonesome Death. Half-wracked prejudice leaped forth Ripped down all hate I screamed Lies that life is black and white Spoke for my skull I dreamed Romantic facts of musketeers Foundationed deep somehow ah, But I was so much older than I'm younger than that now Girls' faces form the forward path From phony jealousy So these are the things that are going on in it, that it never gives way to the anger that it is about. It is angry, but it, it's, it never rages. You remember Dylan very beautifully singing in my back pages, he sings, rip down all hate, I screamed. Now, you can't rip down hate if rip down is what you're doing and if you're screaming it. 
it's a problem for opposition to President Trump now that it's going to say we're in favour of peace and love, not in favour of your hatreds. But you remember, pretty quickly, the protest seems to be animated you mean, by hatred. Right. Uh, now, the question isn't the rights and wrongs of hatred. The question is the hypocrisy of saying, rip down all hate. And Dylan looks back and, no, that can't be. Lies that life is black and white. Now, there are some things in life that are black and white, but life as a whole is not black and white. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, so that seems to me, I think all I'm, all I'm saying is that you're quite right to start with songs of social conscience. Right. I, would, I prefer that. I don't know what Dylan would want. I do know from many things he said that protest it just vexes him. Right. He's mm-hmm. not going protesting all the time. Hey, Kobe, I just wanted to pause it here to uh, point out why it's important that we're talking to Christopher Ricks, a, a literary scholar, on uh, how Dylan uses language to uh, enhance his music. It's incredibly intricate, and I mean, given the context of Dylan just having won the Nobel Prize, mm-hmm. uh, I think it's this is actually kind of an important style of analysis to approach Dylan with. Now, uh, in his book, he gets very intricate. This is line-by-line, word-by-word analysis, and we're going to bring up a few of those points in the interview, but right now he's going to discuss the the patterning of uh, of Hattie right. Carroll. Yeah, and I just love the points that he makes about the endings of the songs and how uh, he really does make a con- pretty convincing case as to why um, Hattie Carroll is, a, a, in his words, a perfect song. Yeah, perfect song and very well patterned. So exactly. uh, let's take a listen. Keats um, and people used to get angry if you mentioned Keats in the vicinity of Dylan as if it's what the new criterion calls a category mistake. Uh, the new criterion said, I was responsible for his getting the Nobel Prize, and I had made a category mistake. <laughs> there at the new criterion, they know that Dylan's music is no good, the words are no good, and even if they were good, they'd be good in some way that has nothing to do with literature. Well, um, I don't think there is a category mistake. The art of song has to be as effective with words as any other art that uses words. It doesn't, though, depend solely on words. It's a, it's a mixed-medium art, uh, as is Shakespeare's. You've, you've used the description of a triangle, an equilateral triangle, <coughs> in order to describe the relation between um, voicing, uh, music, and the words. How does that triangle play into Hattie Carroll? Well, the, the words, for instance, are characterized by a high degree of patterning of the kind and repetition of the kind that you associate with music. That is, poems can have refrains. On the whole, novels, for instance, don't have refrains. Mm-hmm. Films have images that they come back to which feel like a refrain but aren't exactly a refrain. So everything that's everything that at the end of each stanza or verse, the word stanza is slightly posh. In some ways it's clearer than the word verse because verse might be a single line, you know, one verse and right. so on, or in the biblical sense and so on. So <clears throat> perhaps I'll stick with stanza. The there is a very, very beautiful repeated patterning. The patterning is that all the lines that tell the story will end with a particular cadence. They will all have an unstressed final syllable. Uh, It's called a feminine ending. Um, It's called a feminine ending because in French poetry, the E at the end of a word is unstressed final syllable. 
so terre, not terre, and so on. So the the narrative is always has this particular cadence, a particular fall. William Zanzinger killed poor Hattie Carroll with a cane that he twirled around his diamond ring finger at a Baltimore Hotel Society gathering, and the cops were called in and his weapon took from him. And that's a particularly telling one because it's not a two-syllable word. It's his weapon took from him, not his weapon took from him, as against from subject, a weapon took from him, as they rode him in custody down to the station and booked William Danziger for first-degree murder. Now, if he'd been accused of rape, it would have not had a feminine ending. Booked William Danziger for first-degree for first rape, if that made sense. And so on. No, no, the cadence is this. And then every one, every instance of the refrain is the opposite. It's all masculine endings. You who philosophize disgrace and criticize all fears, take the rag away from your face. Now ain't the time for your tears. And now ain't the time is musical because music, above all, dictates the time. When you read it, you can read it with your own timing. When you listen to it, you're in the hands of somebody else's decisions. And, of course, if the man who wrote it music and words, is also the man who sings it. The control of time is especially... A friend of mine once said to me, um, comedy is the secret of timing, which is much, much better than timing is the secret of comedy. It's very, very good. <laughs> and actually, if you don't have a sense of comedy, you don't have it, and tragedy too. How does the, his, his uh, meticulousness in structuring this song compare to some other... Uh, protest songs or politically conscious songs that he wrote, you know, if we compare it to something like Only a Pawn in Their Game, yes. uh, for instance, uh, how does that change? Uh, or Chimes of Freedom, uh, even. And then you say, but uh, in your book, you say, but here is a song that could not be written better. You say this into Dylan into in response to a Dylan quote that's perhaps a little bit too humble about the song. You say, but here's a song that could not be written better, something perfect everywhere. What are other... Dylan songs, perhaps, of the politically conscious genre that are perfect everywhere? Or is this the only one? Oh, I think Altered uh, Town is perfect. Mm -hmm. uh, it's on the smaller scale as a song, um, and in a way, I think we ought to think that <clears throat> whether William Meredith gets into the University of, of Mississippi, gets into Ole Miss, is a smaller matter than somebody being killed or dying, whether she, whether Hattie Carroll was killed by William Zanzinger is a question, but it's a death and so on. Um, we should think that admission to a university is profoundly important. But to, So Oxford Town, I think, is a perfect, apparently small-scale song. It's about something very, very important when, um, despite absolutely hateful police brutalities, cattle prods, I mean, uh, you know, really not good, when William Meredith get Dylan is not sure he wants it to be solely about William Meredith, and he's sort of right, and the University of, of Mississippi, where it happens, my son-in-law now teaches, has put up a you know, put up a statue, as it were, memorialising William Meredith, which Meredith himself doesn't doesn't want. Mm -hmm. Am I right? His name is William. Have I always used? 
James. James, James Meredith. I suddenly felt that this was going very badly wrong with James Meredith. <laughs> Thank you. It's going um, wonderfully. William Meredith is a poet whose work I admire, and I apologise about that. Yeah. Um, but what I'm getting at is that it both is and isn't very specific. Uh, it's a particular place, Oxford Town. Right. It's a particular situation. Somebody better investigate soon. Mm-hmm. That feeling about what it was to go and protest in the South. My gal, my gal, son, we got met with a tear gas bomb. I don't even know why we come going back where we come from. And it has, yeah, um, this is something I think I write about, but I'm not quite sure. It has a kind of strange groaning. All the lines end with N or M. You, d- you did write about this. I it's recall. a funny sort of droning, like a bagpipe, you know, yeah. that drone on a bagpipe. Right. So you've got a curious kind of note, a kind of keening note all the way through town, soon, bomb, and they're, they're M's, they're M's or N's. It's fun. It's a tiny technical thing which then makes a particular effect possible. It's partly, there's the old, there's a very beautiful line in Walter Stevens about uh, blessed. Rage for order. And rage and order are intention, but you'll only get a work of art if you've got something which is a blessed rage and at the same time is order. There's some feeling, this is in my control because things can be controlled, though never as much as you would like to control them. Okay, I think we should stop it here because Rex is about to talk about the song Hurricane, which is about... Reuben Hurricane Carter, the the fighter and his interactions with the criminal justice system. Uh, yeah. He's going to compare it to Lonesome Death and um, talk about why he thinks Hurricane is an imperfect song. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this, uh, regardless, this is one of Dylan's most popular protest songs. Like, right. it's, it's absolutely, it's an incredible song. But, um, you know, it gets into a few things. First, I think we need to talk about the fact that, so the N-word appears in this song, and, and Rick's is actually going to quote it, so we just want to give you a heads up about that. Now, um, we're going to come back around and ask him about Dylan's use of the word in this song relative to a song like Only Upon In Their Game where he specifically avoids it. He references it. It's kind of present in that song, Only Upon In Their Game, but, but he doesn't mention it. And we're going to come back and ask, uh, ask Ricks about that. But the other interesting thing that this song brings up is the distinction between biography and literary analysis is, is Ricks takes mm-hmm. a very hard line on, on being clear about uh, about what in a song is taken from a news story and what is actually in the art of the song, what can be analyzed you know, right. through literary analysis. But at the same time, he still analyzes the song with that background information. Right, right, mm-hmm. right. It is important. And um, just before we play the rest of the interview, uh, I just wanted to give our listeners some context. Um, he mentions Judith, um, and Judith is uh, his wife. And um, he also mentions a line in the song, which is, while Reuben sits like Buddha in a 10-foot cell. Um, Buddha is just... Yeah, an, an innocent man in a living hell. And so, yeah. so Rix is going to reference that line. That'll be important, uh, important when it comes up. I was just interested in um, comparing and contrasting um, Haiti Carroll and uh, Hurricane, the song Hurricane, yes. later on. Because um, you say, like, um, you know, this is how Bob Dylan, he finally learned how to write a song politically. But it seems to me that Hurricane is perhaps his most famous, I think, like, political song. Yes. Well, yes. And I I think it is an astonishing song. I remember being astonished when I first heard it. Uh, Judith, which is a long time ago, Judith sent it to me from America. She was living in America. I was living in England. She sent it to me. 
And there was, of course, immediately the threat of litigation. Everything in America turns on whether or not you can be dragged into court, yeah. and it's not at all clear from that opening line whether uh, whether or not people are going to have uh, have Dylan in court about. And the, the, there is indeed a rethinking of that song because of the particular accusation against somebody who may be being accused of having lied to the police. Just mm. so you're in all that. Um, it's in. It's an intense song, um, uh, and I share the sort of exaltation which you convey about it. I have difficulties. I don't think it is a perfect song. Mm-hmm. I think it's not a perfect song, partly because it doesn't altogether make sense. You can say, um, you can say the all white jury agreed and complain about it being an all-white jury. That's right, there's the anger and the all-white jury agreed. But that doesn't fit with saying um, to the white folks and so on, to the black folks, he was just a crazy nigger. No one doubted that he pulled the trigger. Now, if black folks didn't doubt that he pulled the trigger, it doesn't really make sense to say it was an all-white jury because you've just said it wouldn't have made any difference whether it was, whether they were black or white. I mean, so there's this funny, every now and then it's a wonderful thing to play both sides of the street, but you have to, you've got to be very, very good at it, and you've got to be careful not to be deceiving yourself. I think at that moment there's a sort of deception, or rather that there are different moments. One needs to say, all white jury, bad thing. The other one needs to say he didn't have a chance because the whites and the blacks, both for different reasons. You have to admit no one doubted that he pulled the trigger. But you you can't have the the energy of that bit combined with it. And similarly, um, Hurricane Carter isn't like Buddha. Right. I mean, like Buddha, I mean, in a, uh, he shouldn't have been in a tiny cell, if, that, if those, those are the realities. But like Buddha, I mean, you... He's nothing like Buddha. Mm-hmm. I yeah. mean, it, you know, that's yeah. sentimental, isn't it? Mm-hmm. All, all he wanted to do was ride a horse along the trail. That's not what this person was actually like. We've right. got footage of this person. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, there's no reason to think all he wanted to do was ride a horse along the trail. That's just some American sentimentality about Marlboro cigarettes. Right, right. But <laughs> so. my, my question there becomes the line between incorporating information from outside of a song and dealing with the text itself, which I know is a, lar- a big subject for you in this book. Um, uh, and I, to, just to bring it momentarily back to Hattie Carroll, is uh, there's a, a critic in the book, Alex Ross, you reference in the book, Alex yeah. Ross, who mentions a live performance of Hattie Carroll. And that live performance, the way Dylan apparently played it, reminded him of the, the fact that it was at a spinster's ball, when in fact you say that was never in the song in the first place. And so my question is, with, a, with the instance of Reuben Carter or with the instance of uh, Hattie Carroll being at a spinster's ball, where is the distinction between what's outside of a song being read into it when it's in this politically conscious genre and the song itself? Um, I'm, I'm sure that there can't be given in advance any description of exactly what where that line is that is in general I think we're probably both of us sceptical about lines lines drawn in the sand if Saddam Hussein did so so. no no these lines never the the desperate wish to come up with a line which were made perfectly clear and so on 
these are always matters of tact. Mm -hmm. You can retrospectively look into one and sum up. Well, how do I want? What do I want to say? I want to say proof is out of the question. Okay. The best that you can do is give evidence, and the evidence will then, if you if you succeed, it will make good mm -hmm. a case that you make. Right. Uh, you cannot prove A, B, C, and D. You can't. You can't prove any political judgments at all. It's not clear what it would be to prove that the Holocaust was a bad thing, an evil thing. What would it be to prove that? You're not in a world in which the notion of proof... You can give very, very good grounds for, you can make good the case that this and so on, so, right. and you can give evidence for. Now, if, we, if you try to think about uh, whether or not something is in a song or not, mm -hmm. um, Here's an example from a good friend of mine who now teaches. It isn't, I'm afraid, political, but, right. but it's a similar sort of point. Um, Jennifer Formicelli, who used to teach in the core, now teaches at BU Academy, did a doctorate in, in Cambridge. I'm, I admire her very much and very fond of her. She thinks that the, or she has in the past thought, I don't know whether she still does, that the word coincidence importantly includes the word coin. Right. I can't remember whether I mentioned this in the book you or did, not. You did, yes. Yeah. Now, um, tell you what you have gathered from Cohen's. The highways for gamblers better use your sense, which could become C-E-N-T-S, right. which is a coin. Yeah. Um, uh, highways for gamblers, take what you have gathered from Cohen's. Now, my reason for not believing that there is a pun on coin is that when you, since it's to be sung, not to be read on the page... Cohen is a completely different sound from coin. Right. Um, Whereas sense, uh, <coughs> sense does... Sense might do it. As you may... Yeah. Thank you. As you yeah. kindly remember, I think gambler is a pun on better. Gambler. You get highways for gambler, yeah. better, gambler's better. A gambler is somebody who lays a bet. And every ah, pun, yeah. every pun uh, yeah. is a bet. Right. And every rhyme is a bet. Every right. rhyme bets that you will not get or get the point, or bets <laughs> right. that you'll be tickled by the point you made. They're all, they're all wagers. We're all in, you're, you're wager something, you wager your art and so on. A uh, coin just seems to me to step across into something, right. which, if it were a poem for the page, would be plausible, given how it has to be sung and heard, right. as I think... So for me, it's very different from saying pun on cane, C-A-N-E-C-A-I-N, because cane and cane are identical of sounds, though not identical of spelling. So on the page, it has to be only C-A-N-E. To the ear, got killed by a bow, lay slain by a cane. Lay slain cane. Cane trumps that line and so on and then again what will count as evidence well elsewhere he does talk talk sing about Cain and Abel mm -hmm. um, you know, so who who was the first person to be slain to lay, you know, right. lay slain right and and, and, Cain. and you also point out that that comes after the repetition of table three times in three uh, consecutive yes lines. well you get that sound you get right. the sound you get right. that sound in table 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 level yeah. Um, right. Yeah, right. I'm misquoting, but sorry. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I want to <clears throat> jump back very briefly to Hurricane uh, in its com in the way it uses uh, it uses very openly the N word, and yes. that dis that's uh, distinct from only upon in their game, which you, know, you say only 
this, the word is present. The South politician preaches to the poor white man. You got more than the blacks don't complain. You're better than them. You've been born with white skin, they explain. And the Negro's name is used, it is plain. For the politician's gain as he rises to fame and the poor white remains on the caboose of the train but it ain't him to blame he's only a pawn in our game the n-word is very present there the negro's name it is used it is plain yes but it's never mentioned whereas yeah. in hurricane it is mentioned very openly what what do you make of that decision well one is a historical but I certainly think it's uh, it's an important part of only a pawn in their game. It's got a very long historical vista. Right. It can suggest the word, and it has the Negro's name. If you say, well, what what is a Negro called, a Negro back then? You, you say, I can't say N-word. I, I can't say it because it seems to me a really... I'm not accusing you of it, but it seems to me always a really weird thing to say. Right. It's like the newspaper printing a word that goes C asterisk N T. Mm-hmm. Now, the idea that it, that somehow people, it's different from reading C-U-N-T. No, it isn't. So um, in your book, you talk about how sin is like the best way of like taking the bundle of um, best bottom. way for me for you oh okay yeah oh I think well, I'd like to think there was some creepy use I don't think I, I mean there are umpteen ways of getting mm-hmm. of trying anyway right, I was just wondering because um, you know uh, we, we were talking about how uh, you know Bob Dylan was kind of on like the hottest streak that any artist has ever been on or at least in the 1960s with um, you know from everything from freewheeling up to like John Wesley Harding mm-hmm. um, like we were thinking that um, chronology is also like an interesting way to, to like approach Dylan. Yes. Um, we were wondering, um, you know, uh, why why sin for you? Well, um, I'm not a historian. Sean Wilentz is a historian of Dylan's work and of American culture and history generally, and has written some very good things. Greil Marcus, who's a more combative and happily strange phenomenon altogether, he's like a sort of secular monk great intensity. <laughs> I like and admire him very, very much. Uh, he'll have some other way. And, and it's very historical. I mean, mm-hmm. a lot of it. I, I'm not any kind of historian of it, and it's a disadvantage as a historian that I'm not American. I just don't know nearly enough about mm-hmm. that. Um, so if you say, what are, the, what are the gains and losses of its being simply chronological? Mm-hmm. Well, you still can have to select something. That right. is, it. it is for me built into the idea of of works of art as works of genius, that there are immediately 50 or 100 or 272 ways of talking about it. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. that is, it's built into it that if somebody says, what well, I'm going to look at in Picasso or such and such, you can immediately say, but there are all these other things you could have mm-hmm. done, etc. So the cr- chronology wouldn't solve the question of whether or not you are going to try to get some ways in which one instance can illuminate another one so evan give me a second here because i think we need to i think we need to stop it because there was in my view a slight misunderstanding is that in in reading this book it's not that i i think that 
he should have gone, this is Dylan's first song, this is Dylan's second song. It, it, it's not that I think the book should have been written in order of chronology, but that I think chronology is not taken into account at all, or, or maybe enough, you know, uh, because, I, and I think that that actually does lead to a few errors in literary analysis. And the reason that Ricks gives for Dylan, for Lay Lady Lay not being misogynistic is this. I'm going to read right from the book, which is, um, he compares it to John Donne's Come, Madam, Come. And he says, when Donne begins his poem with Come, Madam, Come, we enjoy the privilege of deciding for ourselves just what, the t what tone those words are uttered in. Wheedling, pleading, urging, enjoining, dictating. But Lay Lady Lay is a song, and one that is sung by its creator with his sense, not only of its sense, but of the senses. And from the very first chords and words, it's clear that the woman addressed is not being dressed down. She's being invited, invited to swoon as the music with its voice swoons and croons or even quoons. So what he's saying here is that the music informs the language, the words. But I can't buy into that concept, and I'll tell you why. Because in Dylan's chronology, from his first four albums, let's say, he plays a totally different character. Both the biographical Dylan and the Dylan that appears on the record plays a totally different character in those four albums than he does in, let's say, the next three albums than he does in the albums that follow that. He changes his voice. David Bowie once said that Dylan's voice is like a mixture of sand and glue, in a complimentary way, let me say. And for me, it's it's on an axis. In some songs, in some albums, he's much more on the sand side of the spectrum. In other songs, he's more on the glue side of the spectrum. So for instance, in those first four albums where he's singing a lot of this socially conscious music, and he's this Woody Guthrie kind of, uh, you know, emulator, and he's singing pure folk with, a, with an acoustic guitar mainly, uh, he, he's much more on the sand side of the spectrum. Uh, it's, it's a lot more sand to glue. But then when you get into these three totally epic albums, which is Bringing It All Back Home, um, Highway, 61. Uh, Highway 61, yeah, Highway 61, and Blonde on Blonde, you get a lot more glue. He starts sticking on these words and these vowels. You hear a song like I Want You, and you hear the way he pushes these vowels out. You know what I'm saying? And, and there's a lot more glue in it. And so he changes his voice. He plays a totally different character. Um, they actually just made a movie about this in like 2007 called I'm Not There where they have six different play people play the, the weird and mysterious characters of Bob Dylan. And so by the time, so after that, that, those three epic albums which are released in like a period of 18 months, three of the greatest albums in rock history, he moves on to John Wesley Harding which is a return to the sand side of the spectrum. It's, right. it's a back to folk. Um, he's not really... Um, he, he's kind of trying to throw people off the track again, you know? And yeah. then he goes to Nashville Skyline. And Nashville Skyline is where this song, Lay Lady Lay, appears. And on Nashville Skyline, I would argue that he falls off the sand and glue spectrum. He goes deeper. He starts, as Rick says, uh, crooning or crooning or, or whatever it is. He, he kind of does this sort of country twang thing, which actually some people have uh, interpreted as sort of a satire of country. But the whole idea that the voice, in, you know, informs the lyrics themselves, that he's not, um, you know, he's not kind of offering a crude proposition to her, but that he's inviting her to his bed when he says, lay, lady, lay, lay across my big brass bread, because of the lyric, or because of the way it's sung, I don't, I don't necessarily buy into that. And I think that taking account 
of the chronology and the way Dylan changes over time would, would lead to a totally different analysis. Lay, 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 lay across my big breast bed. Lay, 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 lay across my big breast bed. The other thing about chronology is that I don't think it just leads to um, a few you know, errors in analysis in terms of a song like Lay Lady Lay, but I think there's something that's missed by not taking account of it. Uh, when, and I want to zoom in on the difference, you know, on the shift between the, the end of that, those, that trifecta of albums that were just totally epic. Um, so Blonde on Blonde is the last of, last of those three. And John Wesley Harding, where he goes back to this more uh, folk sound and he's trying to throw people off his trail, which is this. Um, it's not just a change in the musical style. And I know, I know, um, you know, Mr. Ricks is not a musicologist, so so that wouldn't necessarily be relevant. It's not a change in the music style alone. So Blonde on Blonde, it does have this. He th- I think he calls it like this thin Mercury wild sound or something. The carnival sound. The carnival sound. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. It, it does have that. And then we switch to John Wesley Harding, which has this sort of. It's just guitar, drums, his voice, and a harmonica. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's totally stripped down, which is which is. An interesting change in and of itself, but that also informs the way the the lyrics, the literature itself, is mm-hmm. changing. And I want to use, um, you know, a, a few songs as an example. So on Blonde on Blonde, you have all these illusions and these kind of ghost-like images that are conjured. They appear, they fade into something else. You know, you have visions of Johanna, literally visions, mm-hmm. visions of Johanna. Little boy lost, he takes himself so seriously. You know, you've got Shakespeare, he's in the alley with his pointed shoes and his bells. You know, all these kind of illusions and. And then if you, if you zoom in on a song like Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands, which is an epic 11-minute song, right? Um, you have this really complex sort of rhyme scheme. So it starts with your mercury mouth in the missionary times and your eyes like smoke and your prayers like rhymes and your silver cross and your voice like chimes. Oh, who among them do they think could bury you? That's the first, that's the open of the song, right? And so you think it's pretty simple. You go times, rhymes, chimes, no big deal. Um, then you go bury you, and that's like, so A-A-A-B, right? And then Rick's, as Rick's points out, um, the repetition of like is an assonant sound with the, with the rhymes, the times, rhymes, and chimes, rhymes, right? But then you go, with your pockets well protected at last, and your streetcar visions which you place on the grass, and your flesh like silk, and your face like glass, who among them do they think could carry you? Now, the reason this is important is because Rick's in the book mentions, he quotes, uh, someone is saying, all rhymes are appeals to memory and to hope. So when you hear a rhyme, uh, a word that you think is going to rhyme in the future, you're hoping, you're waiting for that next word to rhyme. When you hear the, that next rhyme come, it appeals to your memory. And so by separating this B rhyme, it goes A, 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 B, C, 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 B, by separating that B rhyme, you're, he's act, asking a lot of the audience to go all the way back to the bury you in order to rhyme it with the carry you. And uh, then it goes into the chorus or the refrain, whatever you call it, want to call it, which is equally complex, right? It goes, um, sad-eyed lady of the lowlands where the sad-eyed prophet says that no man comes. Man and lands rhyme. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. and the comes is kind of hanging off the end and you go oh wow that's kind of disconcerting that this word is hanging off the end but then he goes my warehouse eyes my arabian drums he picks it up and then he finally gives you the release you want when he says um when he says uh should i put them by your gate or sad eyed lady should i wait that's the only really simple part of this whole rhyme structure and that's a huge sprawling verse that's like what 12 maybe 16 lines mm-hmm. and it's, it's really complex right now i want to compare that to something on john wesley harding which is the second song and it starts like this it goes um as i walked out one morning to breathe the air around tom Paine's, i spied the fairest damsel that ever did walk in chains so the the literary style here is is much more direct it's much clearer because as I walk down one morning to breathe the air, immediately you get an image of freedom. You uh, walk out to breathe the air. But it's not just walk out to breathe the air. It's walk out to breathe the air around Tom Paine's. Tom Paine, Common Sense, 76, Freedom. As I walked out one morning to breathe the air around Tom Paine's, I spied the fairest damsel that ever did walk in chains. First of all, when you spy something, you're not necessarily walking out in the open. You're not, as I walked out one morning, spies, don't us- or spies usually hide in the shadows. I spied the fairest damsel that ever did walk in chains. That's the opposite of freedom. Mm-hmm. So you get this thing happening where it's much more direct. You don't have all of these kind of images and illusions, kind of these ghost-like things, um, these streetcar visions, if you will. It's, it's very direct. And all of these songs remain focused on one or two or three characters, like um, the ballad of Frankie Lee and Judas Priest is a five-minute song that goes back and forth between Frankie Lee and Judas Priest and Frankie Lee and Judas Priest. And then the one last point I want to make about this John Wesley Harding album in, in terms of you know, its, its literary style is that you have a song like I Dreamed I Saw St. Augustine, which it's, it's really remarkable because Dylan takes advantage of meter in a song which is really hard to do because usually you're slave to the melody. So I Dreamed I Saw St. Augustine. That's written in iambic feet, so unstressed, stressed syllables. Whereas Shakespeare wrote in iambic pentameter, this line happens to be an iambic tetrameter, which means just four beats. I dreamed I saw St. Augustine, alive as you are me. But then check this out. The next line is, tearing through these quarters in the utmost misery. Tearing is falling, stressed, then unstressed. Um, Through these quarters in the utmost misery. All of them are falling after that. And it's because he's tearing, it's a disruption, right? And then, so the, the rest of that verse remains like that. And then you go to the next verse, which goes immediately right back into this meter. Arise, arise, he cried so loud in a voice without restraint. Uh, and the song retains that pattern. In the, last, in the last verse, he goes, I dreamed I saw St. Augustine alive with fiery breath. I dreamed I was amongst the ones who put him out to death. Oh, I awoke in anger, so lone and terrified. I put my fingers against the glass and bowed my head and cried. Notice that he says, oh, I awoke in anger. Oh, I, unstressed stress. He needs the O in order to keep the meter. Um, So lone and terrified, not so alone and terrified, so lone and terrified. I put my fingers against the glass and bowed my head and cried. And so I think by drawing a distinction like this in chronology between the, the sort of artistic excess, the overflow of Blonde on Blonde versus the very controlled, direct, and simple language of John Wesley Harding, you can gain a lot from that. And, yeah. and I also think that the link between those two is um, you know, bringing in the biographical information that we talked about before. Um, 
you know, after 1966 um, tour that Bob Dylan did in England, um, he kind of fell off the radar of like the mainstream media and sort of just went into hiding. He staged this like motorcycle accident. Um, and all of that's relevant because, you know, I think he felt the need to just kind of again, like reform himself as an artist and then, yeah, drop this, uh, this John Wesley Harding album, which is, you know, totally different, but also really awesome. And genius. Yeah. I mean, there's this great thing that he does where it's like uh, with All Along the Watchtower, mm -hmm. which was kind of made famous by Jimi Hendrix a year later, but All Along the Watchtower, um, he takes the first verse of the song and puts it at the end, right? Uh, the last line of the song is, Two riders were approaching and the wind began to howl. But the first two verses are, um, there must be some way out of here, said the Joker to the thief. And then the next verse, the, the thief talks back to the Joker. And then it ends on two riders were approaching and the wind began to howl, mm -hmm. um, which is just a really like interesting artistic choice, you know? Yeah. I don't know a good, I don't know for me a first rate book on Dylan that is chronological, mm -hmm. except a biography. I, I yeah. think it's a great pity. Uh, that it's a great pity that biographers often lose interest in the person they're writing about before they finish the book. Right. Mm -hmm. um, that, that tends to happen, do you know I mean? So you have a biography and then it's not interested in the last 20 years. It's not interested in Dylan once he became a Christian, say. Right. Yeah, that's true. So, real quick, but in terms of sin, I mean, uh, being a, an atheist as you are, I believe, and you mentioned in the book, is that true? Yes. Um, what What struck you about sin? You were, were you walking around one day saying, I, I've been wanting to write a book about Dylan, but I don't know how to organize it. Sin. What, when and why did sin pop into your head as the well, manner to organize it? Well, there are an awful lot of wonderful lines about him which include the word sin. I mean, right. I can I have a page of them. I right. could have had five pages of them. It right. comes up in every kind of song that he writes. There'll be some reference to sin. Okay. So, what, what strikes Christopher Ricks about this? That I never think in terms of sin. Okay. Um, uh, and T.S. Eliot, whom I've worked on, yeah. would think it uh, would rightly think it a very great limitation in my sense of the world and of life and uh -huh. of what life ought perhaps to be. That I don't think in terms of sin. Yeah. I often think in terms of cruelty and betrayal and treachery and infidelities of different kinds. So on, but I don't think in terms of sin. My world doesn't much include, and I suspect that an awful lot of your contemporaries, the word sin feels amazingly archaic. Unfortunately, yeah. Yeah, perhaps. and you can think. Um, I was talking to my course students yesterday about the word joy. And actually, they were, they were, they were I'm not surprised they were very good, but I was surprised by how quickly they moved to say, they think in terms of happiness. They know what life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness means. If it were life, liberty, and the pursuit of joy, they wouldn't know where they are. It's all very well for Beethoven to set Schiller's <laughs> own to joy in the ninth symphony. But they don't think in terms of joy. They right. think, I'm very happy. Um, or they, a whole series of things. Some of them spoke very beautifully about contentment. They, they, feel, they feel contented. Mm -hmm. um, but so what I'm going to... So, now, why is it then perverse of somebody who does not go around with a sense of sin, even when he has behaved badly? It's not sin that it seems to me to come home. Is it perverse to be drawn to an artist of whom that is the opposite of the truth? No, because we have art. There are lots of reasons why we have art, but one very good reason why I found is to give us sympathetic access to systems of belief that are not our own. Mm -hmm. 
that is, there are only two ways in which we ever become sympathetic towards systems of belief that are not our own. One is by loving somebody who has the whole those beliefs. Uh, my oldest child is a Christian. Um, that has to make me, that has to give me sympathetic access uh, to Christianity. As I say, and uh, he knows I say it, I can't understand it. I gave him a healthy upbringing and he, <laughs> and he became a Christian. I mean, uh, and so on. But so the, the belief that art matters because it confirms our beliefs is, of course, a true one. That is, there's a lot of great art which does have this extraordinary power of confirming your beliefs. But you, we really must not limit our appreciation of art or of other people right. to the way in which they confirm what we believe. That it's very, very good for us to have to entertain the idea that, for me, to entertain the idea that Christianity is compassionate and dispassionate mm -hmm. and as preoccupied with justice and mercy as a religion should be. Another song then that I, I suppose uh, fits that category, it's not in the book, but I did really want to discuss it, is Just Like a Woman. Yes. And it, it really struck me, I just have to say on a personal level, when I, I was doing some research about, you know, I was watching some of your videos and, and you were addressing the, the <laughs> argument that's... that's... I love the idea that people chained up somewhere. You made to watch these videos. <laughs> oh my God, that's what I call really soft porn. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, you know, it struck me that, that anyone would have accused the song of being misogynistic uh, because I had always heard it as perhaps the most tender breaking up that I had ever heard. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You know, to me, what what was said was um, she aches just like a woman. She breaks just like a little girl. That a woman, that an adult, internalizes pain. That a little girl, if you disappoint her, or a little child, a boy or girl, will will shatter. Will you will see them tears stream down their face almost immediately. And it it, it struck me that a song like Just Like a Woman could be accused of this. Now the comparison I make, and and where I might disagree with you. Yeah is on a song like Lay Lady Lay, mm -hmm. where you suggest that it's an invitation. Um, Lay Lady Lay, Lay Across My Big Brass Bed mm -hmm. is, is an invitation in the way he sings it. Uh, for me, I had always heard that song prior to engaging with any of this material as perhaps if any Dylan song were to be accused of misogyny mm -hmm. as misogynistic. And so I, I would, I was, I'm curious into if you can go into the defense of Just Like a Woman and uh, again, I guess suppo I suppose the defense of Lay Lady Lay that you lay out uh, both in lay your book. Lay out, <laughs> You lie. <laughs> All right, I think we should pause it here and just play a little sample from Just Like a Woman. It's one of my favorite songs. It's one of your favorite songs. Yeah, yeah. And I think we should play a specific part. Um, the bridge is really nice because, as Rick's mentions in a different talk, uh, the the bridge really unfolds a lot of the images that are presented in the beginning of the song. So. Um, you know, nobody feels any pain tonight as I stand inside the rain mm -hmm. is the opening of the song. And then we're going to play this bridge and it's going to play into a chorus, which is the part that I guess is accusable of, of misogyny. And then we're going to have Rick's discuss uh, why or why not. And then we'll go into Lay Lady Lay. Sounds good.
Just Like a Woman is explicitly, uh, and uh, in the talk I give on it, and I, it doesn't figure in the book, uh, <coughs> uh, it's explicitly attacked uh, by some of the best Dylan critics. I mean, Christopher Butler says there is no way in which Dylan can sing She Breaks Just Like a Little Girl without it being profoundly embarrassing. Now, when people say embarrassing, they mean sort of shameful, really, and so on, or inappropriate. <gasps> inappropriate, and so on. So Christopher Butler says that, and Michael Gray says that. Michael Gray <laughs> said at one point the only justification would be that it's actually gay. Right. Uh, it's a gay song because otherwise it's the worst song Dylan never wrote and so on and all yeah. that uh, similarly I've forgotten <laughs> rather misogynistically I can't remember the name uh, <laughs> of, of the woman who's attacked him but I do personally know Michael Gray and Christopher Butler so, yeah. and there's a long history there's a long history really of not asking yourself what the song ministers to not what does it say simply, but what does it minister to? Now, I don't think it's a misogynistic song. I think part of my argument is that the accusation needs to arise. All religious art needs to be accusable of blasphemy. The accusation then needs not to stick. But if it doesn't arise, you played safe, and if you played safe, you didn't create a great work of art. All erotic art needs to be accusable of pornography. It has been accused, it's always accused of it, and moreover, there'd be something very wrong with it if it weren't accusable. It needs to be accusable because these this is a minefield. Uh, and the idea that, that there aren't any minds out there, well, there clearly are. You have to be able to think it can thread its through way, way through without treading on the minds. But the idea that you could ever have profoundly erotic or profoundly religious all serious studies of relations between men and women, or between men and men and women and women, are accusable of sexism. Jane Austen's accused of sexism by feminists as well as by masculinists, if there, if there were such people. Um, if it were. So for me, it's very important. It's very important that the words "just like a woman" offer the possibility immediately. Uh, well, it's just like a woman to do that, and so on. Uh, men just don't get it. Okay, yeah. um, which is a thing. It was a slogan. Women are allowed to say men just don't get it. If men said women just don't get it, we would rightly be told off. And so he says reparations in some way or other and so on. So now I, I think why it's not misogynist because it takes no pleasure in what it reports. That all bigotries enjoy what they are saying. It's a terrific pleasure to say, uh, string them up. Put her in jail. Do you know what I mean? The, the, yeah. the um, bigotry catches on because it's very enjoyable. 
German. There's a terrific glee in it. Right. And it's very, very clear. And I'm not just talking about President Trump, I'm talking about yeah. any, any of these things. Uh, the lynching is terrifically happy. Right. I mean, uh, it, you know, it's one of the deepest, darkest things about it. The, the photo, they're sending postcards as they hang, and the postcards don't see people muted. And they say, hey, you know, uh, that'll show them, and so on. That'll learn them, that'll teach them a lesson. Mary Beard, in, in, uh, from the safety of England, saying when the Twin Towers uh, happened, um, America had it coming. So, I mean, now gloating is a very, very important part of bigotry. I find no pleasure, Dylan, I, I agree with what, what the young you, <laughs> the young you first believed when you heard the song. It's, it, it wishes things could be otherwise. Right. Uh, we just don't fit. Yeah. It would be lovely if we did fit, but we don't, when, you know, there's still a hope that we might fit, because if you rhyme on the word fit, you haven't really quit. Right, because no, you've got fit and quit rhyming, so there's something, something still kind of Velcro hold. Uh, so now I'm supposed to defend, I'm to defend Lady Lady Lay. Um, it's in a particular tradition of showing that you respect somebody whom you're propositioning by taking a lot of trouble with how you put it. <laughs> now, right. so it's a trip. I mean, that is. You, 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 one line would be no self-respecting woman would ever lie across a bed as a result of this song. Another one would be any woman <laughs> who loves language, loves music, loves the human voice, right. is attracted to anybody sexually at all, would think this is very really good. Yeah. Right. So for me, it is with, and I probably say this, it's a long time since I wrote this book, um, right. but uh, it... Uh, for me, it is like, uh, had we but world enough and time, this coyness lady were no crime. To his coy mistress, if we if we got all the time in the world, I'd be happy to take a hundred years. Do you want to turn that yeah. off? And any woman of any sensitivity would just... Yeah. Why right. wait any longer for the, When he... Put yourself into the third person, it's so sweet. But, Why wait over the one you love when he's standing in front of you? But don't you believe he's... <laughs> perhaps telling a lie when he says you can have your cake and eat it too in that song that well, seems that seems like he's he's uh you know there there's some sort of beguiling going yeah on. well there are fictions which are not exactly lies John. right if you say to a woman you look good enough to eat if you're a cannibal it's a different thing to say <laughs> so you can right. have your cake and eat it too is something that the the absurd english politician boris johnson has just said about brexit Right. We're going to have our cake and eat it too. I want to deal with, because in this song, when you mention it in the book, you mention the way he croons, right? Mm. And that has to do with voicing, mm-hmm. which uh, reminds me of this very interesting distinction that uh, isn't dealt with in the book, it, you know, with good cause. The, the distinction between Dylan singing live and Dylan singing on yeah. a record. And my question here. Um, revolves primarily around the way, not just the way he the voicing of a song changes, but the way lyrics can change uh and the most salient example to me at least is tangled up in blue all right so uh evan do you think we should just play the two side by side what are the two versions uh, that we're gonna play yes yeah, so we have the uh, 1986 real live version of uh tangled up in blue and then we have the uh 1975 version of tangled up in blue off blood in the tracks okay all right let's play both of them side by side you'll hear the lyrical differences and then we'll have rex discuss it sounds good so now i'm going back again i got to get to her somehow we 
is so substantial as to make it a real thing that it's a different song. Right. Now, so the, the, there's a, there is a big evident philosophical problem about how much you have to change something for it to no longer be the same. Mm-hmm. There's a book by the philosopher David Wiggins about this whole subject. Uh, is it still the same bike if I do such and such? I take the wheel off and put another wheel. How much and so on? Uh, he brought that book out in a second edition, <laughs> and then the question was, is it the same book as the previous book? So the answer again and again is yes and no. There's a sense in which to change anything um, in a work of genius is to give you a new song. So you've got to change one word for it. And uh, There's a realistic thing that says, no, there is a song called Tangled Up in Blue. Mm-hmm. Uh, it exists in many, but it exists in many, and of course many, many more than what you've just given. Right, yeah. An umpteen rewriting of that song. On the subject of rhymes, I mean, you make a, a, a big deal out of rhymes in the book and, in, and uh, to great effect. And the most famous rhyme perhaps is Grand Coulee Dam to the Capitol. I just want to stop it here and uh, talk about this rhyme for a second. So Allen Ginsberg much admires this rhyme. It's um, it's in the chorus, and the beginning of each chorus in this song changes. The latter halves are always the same. So idiot wind blowing like a circle around my skull from the Grand Coulee Dam to the Capitol. He calls this one of the great disillusioned national rhymes because the wind blowing like a circle around his skull. The skull is rhyming with capital. A skull is your head. Capital is the head of government. Uh, skull is a dome shape. Capital, the Capitol building, is a dome shape, and and so this is apparently, uh, at least to Allen Ginsberg and to many many people, is one of the great rhymes that Dylan uh, Dylan achieves in his work. And I think it says something personally. And and this is really a, a question that I wish we we got to ask Rick a little right. more about, which is you know uh, Grail Marcus, which is a guy that I think uh, uh, Mr. Ricks mentions, ca- talks about Dylan as as really capturing an old weird America. Mm-hmm. And and for all the John Donne and Shakespeare and Keats um, uh, that that is in this book, um, and all the the wonderful things that Ricks does breaking down Dylan, I think 
there might be sort of like a, a paucity of attribution to American influence, you know. And I think that there's one um, critic of Rick's that that phrased it really well, and I just want to I just want to throw it out there for the audience. Um, this is is James Walcott, who's who's writing in the New Republic, and he says. Um, Bob Dylan is the living, wheezing summation of the bardic, self-mythologizing blue denim tradition of Walt Whitman. Like bearded Walt, Dylan is American in every weary corpsicle of his democratic being, his songs rolling like railcar through the same restless geography of insomnia and graveyard spirits as Whitman's poems and Tom Wolfe's lunar monologues. Yeah, you know, and I, I mean, I think this is a very good point, right? I mean, even if you look back to the footage of the Royal Albert Hall concert uh, in 1966, I mean, Bob Dylan is, again, getting booed off the stage there, and he's literally like, you know, this is American music. This isn't British music. Like, he's, <laughs> he's, he's making a, you know, a claim to, like, they just don't get it. And, yeah. and you know, uh, Rick's actually, in the interview, kind of concedes this point. You know, he's, he's like, it, it's, it is a disadvantage for me and, um, that I'm not American. I don't share this, like, sentiment mentality towards the right. uh, you know history right. of it um, but that's why he's kind of taking this uh, liter- literary approach towards looking at Dylan right so. right and I, I you know I, I take that point point from mr. Rex and I think it's you know it, it is fair um, but e- but even from you know a literary perspective like a, a Walt Whitman uh, appearing or or Ginsburg I mean Ginsburg is much more uh, you know geographically local and temporally local to to um, to Dylan and, and the way he appears in the book is is really just as as you know applauding applauding Dylan because Ginsburg was an admirer of Dylan that's fair but mm-hmm. I I have to I feel very much uh, and I guess I would have to do a closer analysis because feelings don't count but uh, it, it seems as though the beat poet tradition really is Dylan is the logical extension of that tradition. Grand Coulee Dam to the Capitol, um, yes. which is Ginsburg Grand called National Rhyme. The Great Dissolution <laughs> National Rhymes. Yeah. Just fantastic. Um, but there are other songs, there are other um, rhymes in that song, in Idiot Wind, that are truly remarkable and I think only made possible through this triangle where Dylan is voicing the song himself. And I wanted to ask you specifically about the rhyme of Italy. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, they're planning stories in the press. Whoever it is, I wish they'd cut it out quick. I wish uh, I can only guess. They say I shot a man named Gray who uh, and took his wife to Italy is the way he sings it. But Italy, Italy, Italy would never, ever yes. rhyme in another sense. And I, yes. I wanted to ask about the way Dylan voicing a song like that actually allows certain unexpected rhymes to become possible. Yeah. Well, I'm just grateful. I think that's very, very good. I, I may sometimes I find, to, as you perhaps do, to my surprise, I hadn't, I haven't properly listened to it. Right? Uh, do you know what I mean? Yeah. That is, um, I think it much when he sings Ezra Pound and T. S. Eliot. Now that's sounding the T. That clear. There's something about T. S. Eliot. Right. Do you know what I mean? That right. really uh, old possum Ezra Pound. You know, fighting in the captain's. Tower, yeah, yeah, well, that, 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 that's right. That's very good. <laughs> so there are, there are there's certainly the yeah, there are certainly these minute effects. They're very, very difficult to talk about. Right. They're very difficult to argue about. Which is slightly different. If somebody says, "I just don't hear it," as such and such, yeah. the conflict of testimony is very quickly a problem. Uh-huh. That is, if somebody says, "I don't," if somebody said, "I don't think there's a pun on waste." 
in the expense of spirit and a waste of shame, right. then you pretty quickly know why you argue W-A-I-S-T, right? You, you right. know what it is. If somebody, if somebody talks about the particular effect of, I don't want to be hers, I want to be yours, uh, hers and yours right. are different from hers and yours, right. because hers and yours suggest it would be a quite easy little slide along. I don't want to be hers, I want to be yours. Right. Um, so the joke, Poets too do these jokes without it having to be sung. Yeah, that is, you can you rhyme, you give an, a rhyme which isn't the rhyme that you would ordin- how you'd ordinarily say it. But, right. Uh, no, you, I, all I, what can I do but agree with you? Right. I, well, I was just I was just curious yeah. because it was to me that rhyme is uh, you know really remarkable yeah. and the the entire song. I think yes. the comedy of that first. Yeah. There is a certain comedy in that first. Uh, what was the term you preferred? Stanza or verse? Yeah. Uh, stanza of the song. Um, because he starts out saying, you know, um, they're planting stories in the press, whoever it is, I wish they would cut it out quick, they can only guess. And then he says, they say I shot a man in gray. Mm. All of it makes it seem as though he didn't do any of these things. And then he yeah. ends the verse saying, I can't help it if I'm lucky. Yes. I inherited a million yeah. bucks, I can't <laughs> yeah. help it. Yeah. So yeah. He, he seems and to be... And rhymes with me. Right. When and she died, he came to me. I can't remember I'm lucky. Right. But it's extraordinary that he's he's subtly kind of brushing off these charges and then says, hey, I'm lucky. I got a million bucks from yeah. all the things they said I did. Yeah. Um, and it's an extraordinary comedy that comes through rhyme. You well, know, that's right. Well, I think, I think there's a case that says all the great, uh, all the great American word users have made very good jokes. Right. Um, yeah, right. like you kind of mentioned it too in your book um, uh, when you mentioned the song "Sign on the Window" with um, the rhyme "Utah" and "Me Pa." Uh, yeah. yeah, I think it's a wonderful <laughs> yeah. because "you" is not "Y O U." Utah, me, it's Utah's and me, Jane. I mean, there's, there's, it's it's kind of you know, it's a, it's a very very good thing to do, and, and uh, yeah, thank you. Right, right. <laughs> Um, well, I we 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 should stop soon because I'm yes. going to go home. Absolutely. Yeah, no, no, I mean I'm not I'm not I'm nothing but um, yeah. pleasures by your company. But I should just remind me, I've got somebody in England for eleven o'clock. Surely, that's five hours from now. It's now quarter to eleven. Right. Just meet right. another time if you'd like to. Surely, of course, I'd be happy for work. Hey, Kobe, I think this is a good place to leave it off. Yeah, man. I mean that that experience was. Wild! It was so much fun talking to him. He was so generous. He offered us. Tea. He gave us tea. He gave us honey. He gave us honey. Books <laughs> of Italian poems. A, yeah, book of uh, uh, Italian poems written in the 13th century. Uh, what's the What's the Tingle Up in Blue lyric? Um, it's not, these aren't actually from the, t- the 13th century. But, yeah. uh, she opened up a book of poems and handed it to me, written by an Italian poet from the 13th century. There we and go. Every one of them words rang true like burning coal, pouring off of every page like it was written in my soul from me to you. Anyways, um, <laughs> just want to give a big shout out to Christopher Ricks for you know, Sir Christopher Ricks. That guy, he is so nice and generous. Uh, he was generous with his time, um, engaged us in a lengthy discussion. We think we played the parts of the interview that that uh, you are really were the really stand out. Yeah, and um, we wish we could just play the whole thing for uh, for our audience, but uh, it was really a special experience. And um, uh, you know, there was I think in his words there was a nice spirit in the room. Exactly. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Anyways, <laughs> thanks for listening, and uh, we we hope you took something away from this. And it's all over now, baby blue.